good afternoon and welcome to our first podcast on our leadership called Chamber Chat. Leadership Newton Council plans to present at least three of these a year with different leaders from our community. Our goal is to give leadership development insights to help strengthen you and build our community. It is my distinct honor today to introduce Val Gleason, CEO and President of Newton Medical Center. We appreciate you taking uh, time out of your busy schedule, I know Val's very busy, to share with us today. Val has worked in healthcare since 1975. Her clinical background was spent in adult intensive care units, and I know those are pretty intense. I spent many a time there with my husband. She then started on a progressive managerial track in 1989. Val has been in hospital administration for 20 years. 16 of that have been at Newton Medical Center. She transitioned to CEO in March of 2016 and became board president in September of 2016. She currently serves as the board of directors of the Kansas Hospital Association and its policy and advocacy and governance committees. She is president of the Kansas Affiliation of the American Heart Association. Val also serves on the governing boards of the Kid Power, Inc., Asbury Park, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas, CEO Advisory Board, and this fall will join the board of Heston College. She also was named Woman of the Year in, 19, in 2019. Her interests include her family, being in the company of good friends, visiting museums of all kinds, reading good books, writing columns for our local newspapers, and I know you see those often, and speaking to nice crowds like you here today. Val and her husband have four children and six grandchildren, and we know how special those grandchildren. Val and I kind of really share that special bond. So at this time, it is my distinct pleasure to turn it over to my dear friend, Val Gleason. Thank you, Pam. I know sometimes it may sound cliche when speakers get up and say that they're honored to have been asked to speak. But today I'm truly honored. Uh, uh, you've asked me to speak about my perspectives on leadership. And so I hope that uh, we're going to do something here that appeals to everyone. There are leaders in this audience that I have respected and looked up to and learned from, and I want to share some of those things with you, as well as some of the lessons I've learned along the way of life. I'm going to theme this, that your leadership can actually spread heart health. I believe that. And I think it can be borne out in the way that we deal with people uh, in our roles as leaders, but also in our everyday life, how we interact with people and how we choose to be. That's me. And so throughout uh, this time together, you're going to hear from a clinical perspective because that's who I am, and that's who I'll always be because I'm called to be a nurse. And there was never anything else in my whole life I ever wanted to do more than be a nurse and uh, look after sick people in their time of need. Uh, that's actually me in the upper left-hand corner. I look like one of the 
uh, deaconesses from Bethel Hospital, don't I? Maybe I was always destined to work at Newton Medical Center, even though I graduated from a school of nursing in Akron, Ohio. But my clinical passion, as Pam said, is the adult intensive care units and the coronary care units specifically. I love cardiology and I love taking care of patients who'd unfortunately suffered uh, cardiac events, but also uh, taking care of them post-op. Uh, most patients got much better very quickly, and that was gratifying. And that also serves as part of my leadership passion. What I like to say is I protected and defended my individual patients one at a time as a nurse, but now I can protect and defend our employees who protect and defend our patients. And to me, that's a fun place to be. The influences on my leadership have come from several places, from my background in science and nursing, which will be pervasive here, from a situational leadership model that was espoused by Paul Hershey and Ken Blanchard. And in that leadership model, one never approaches every situation the same all the time. Different situations call for different approaches. And that was the basis of uh, my undergraduate and my graduate degrees uh, in business. I also love this model, the Quality Trilogy by Donna Bedian, which dictates that in order to get to a good outcome and a predictable outcome, you ought to have good processes in place to support how you're going to get there. And you also ought to have good processes in place or good structure in place to support the process. So, formal science and business education and a resilience lesson. Because if there's any one thing we all have to have in this life, it's resilience. Because we're all going to encounter difficulty. Life sometimes is no fun. And life, a lot of times, is not fair. I've also found that the higher you rise in leadership, the more likely you are to become someone's target. And it's a very interesting phenomenon. And so, uh, as one teacher told me uh, many times, the easiest job in the world is to be a critic. Because the critics can drop their bombs on your shoulders and walk away and not have to shoulder one bit of accountability or responsibility for what they've just done to you. But if you don't have resilience to withstand it, you'll crumble. And your life won't be much fun to live. So, a resilience lesson. I entered the, the profession of nursing at a time when I thought I'd be able to earn my living as a registered nurse for the rest of my life. It was in the mid-70s, and so prospects were bright. And within seven years, I found myself in Kansas, a thousand and a hundred miles away from my family, divorced from the husband who brought me here, <laughs> with two little tiny children, one of them a baby in arms. I had just bought a house for us to live in and I lost my job due to a layoff. I was in school at that time at Wichita State and thought, well, I'm just gonna drive up Hillside Avenue as soon as I can stop crying and I'm gonna change majors because it's obvious to me I will not be able to earn my living as a nurse for the rest of my life. So I declared a new major in business and started over. The School of Business did not take many of my nursing credits. So it took me 11 years part-time slogging through an undergraduate degree 
a few more years to pay off the debt, and I decided that before my youngest child graduated from high school, I better finish my master's so that I could go teach in the evenings after work and put her through school. And that's what I did. And so I get it when employees say and people say, I, I feel like I'm in hard times. I, I just don't even know how I'm going to get up and face tomorrow because my life is really tough right now. I get that because I've been in the basement. Influences on my leadership, science seeks truth. And so there are those around me that say you're always looking for the, the data side of things, and I always am because that's who I am. It's how I learned first. Um, I also believe that never does nature say one thing and wisdom another in the end. And that's, uh, that was written a long time ago in the 16 satires by Juvenal, 2nd century AD. And I think that there's some people in this audience that know. If the rain doesn't come, the crops don't grow. If you don't save enough seed this year, the next year you won't have a crop. If you don't water your plants when you're supposed to, you won't eat. And so in the end, Mother Nature prevails. And nature is a powerful tool. And it's a powerful tool in management and leadership as well. I always like to say I never want to get too far away from the farm because those were good lessons growing up. Last May, I was invited to speak to a group about heart health. <laughs> and it was for a Go Red for Women event. And the, the, they told me, you really ought to speak because you're the president of our American Heart Association board. So that's kind of expected. OK, well, I make it a point never to turn down a speaking engagement anyway. But I thought, what in the world am I going to say to a room full of people, physicians, other clinicians, heart health specialists, heart advocates? What could I possibly say to them that they haven't already heard? Am I going to say, eat more broccoli? Exercise more? Lose a little weight? So I could have talked about all the, go ahead and advance. All the usual healthy suspects, you know, the healthy lifestyle suspects. But I thought, here's an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to speak about what's in my heart in leadership. And that's what I decided to do. I decided to test my theory on this audience. And actually, it tested very well. Going back to the days that I worked in the coronary care unit, I remember a specific patient. And he'd had a bad heart attack. And he, he, he was an amazing person, because he was determined to get well, even though I had defibrillated him about 48 hours ago. And usually, people don't do that well after you defibrillate them. At least in those days, they didn't, because we didn't have great drugs then, like we do today. And I went to work on 3 to 11 that one evening. And there he was, sitting in his bed in the coronary care unit, pretty sick still. He had his little dictating recorder in his hand, and he had a lap full of papers and a briefcase next to his bed. I said, what are you doing? He says, I've got to get this work done. I said, no, you really don't. You, you know, you're in the hospital here. How about if I put that stuff away and bring you a nice cup of broth or something like that, you know, or hospital jello? And I, he said, no, I've got to get this work done. 
I have to get this work done because my boss expects me to get this work done, and I have to do it. I said, well, you're sick in the bed. You just had a heart attack. Yeah, but my boss is going to expect me to have this work done. And I thought, I'm never going to forget you. And I never have. I'm never going to forget you because you've just taught me an object lesson in how not to be a boss. How cruel. And so, as I've, um, you know, sometimes when you get in, in roles, you have these clandestine little secrets in your mind. And my clandestine secret has always been, I want to lead in a way that was not that guy's boss's way. If I ever get the chance, I want to be the kind of boss that makes people's hearts healthy and that doesn't demand of them when they're lying in a bed in the coronary care unit to get their work done. And so that's what I've strive to do. I tested this concept with this group and actually it tested very well. I asked myself, if you're a leader, could you influence heart health in another person or a group or even an entire organization by the way you lead? And by the way you lead, could you actually spread heart health in your organization? So how would you do that? Well, it certainly wouldn't be by lecturing your employees about eating more broccoli or exercising more, but I think it's more in the, in the, in the other clandestine things that happen to people's minds, the other factors of heart disease. I think it's okay for a leader to sustain an expectation for quality job outputs. That is fine. A leader should set the bar high, and a leader should expect their organization to climb over the bar if the bar is set reasonably. I mean, if the goal is attainable, a smart goal, as we've all heard about. I think the leader can also be fair and square and operate in a just culture where everybody is held accountable for what they're supposed to be doing. That's just, and that's fair. But I think a leader can also show kindness and consistency and good manners and, and note praiseworthy deeds. So the other factor to me is eliminating or not inflicting unnecessary workplace stress. Unnecessary stress. Work in and of itself is stressful enough. The people who come to work in the hospital every day have intrinsic stress. It's hard to watch people be sick. It's hard to watch people die. It's hard to watch their families. In fact, it's harder to watch their families. And so at our place, our, our environmental services people work in germs that if they take those germs home with them, they could get sick or die from them. So there's inherent stress to every job, no matter what you do. But why would you want to have the kind of job where someone inflicts workplace stress on you that they have no business inflicting? Stress, we all know, is a physiologic response. It's the way that our body reacts with hormones, catecholamines like epinephrine and norepinephrine, steroids like cortisol. It pours into your bloodstream when you're under stress. 
And sometimes that's good stress. It helps you mount a fight or flight response when you're in danger. It helps you cope. But it's the chronic effects of hormones on your resilience stores or your coping mechanisms that I think bad bosses can inflict. And a bad boss is what none of us ever wants to be. Types of stress responses, just quickly, positive. A normal and essential part of healthy development. You're in a parking garage and you hear footsteps behind you. Your body pours hormones to, to mount your fight or flight response. After you realize you're not in danger, your heart rate comes down, your pulse, comes da pulse and blood pressure come down, everything returns to normal. Those are normal daily stressors. Maybe you're angry about getting stopped at a stoplight too long. Maybe you see the little red lights in, in the window behind you. Uh, normal reactions to stress. Responses to a more severe stressor. Someone you love dies. Your stress level goes up. And it may not come back down. It may come down in fits and starts over a very long period of time. But a toxic stress is one like this. You come up here, and it's very high level, and you never really recover. People who are abused, spousal abuse, child abuse, those people never get out of toxic stress. And so they're constantly pouring catecholamines, making the hormones and the physiologic responses in their body that make it impossible to come down from that level. Fight or flight hormones do many things. You wouldn't expect anything different to, but to get an anatomy and physiology lesson today from a, from a clinician. But what I will say is it affects, stress affects the whole body. The kidneys, the adrenal glands, the liver, the heart, the brain, the insides of your arteries, it makes your blood sluggish. It inflames the insides of your arteries. If you've been paying attention, and I'm sure you have during COVID, you've heard about these immune responses that occur. Cytokine levels go up. You've heard about the cytokine storm in COVID-19 that we didn't know how to treat early on. Now we know how to treat it. Less people die of that than they were dying in February and March. But the whole stress response is whole body, whole physiologic. Chronic stress is harmful and deadly. But when it's inflicted, and if it's intentionally inflicted, and it's unnecessary, and it's done by management, it's wrong. It's ethically and morally wrong. A couple things I wonder. Why do you want to work as a leader? Who would be brave and tell me, why do you want to work in a leadership role? to influence outcomes, to make a positive difference, to keep yourself accountable. Those are great reasons. Those were my guesses on what I'd hear from this audience. I want to make a difference. I have good ideas. I need a way to express them so they can get implemented. I can inspire other people. I need variety. I don't like two days to be the same, right? It's, sometimes you go into leadership because it's essential for your career development. You just need to lead to get where you're going. 
I didn't hear rank has its privilege. I didn't hear I'm going to come and go from work whenever I please. I'm going to yell and swear at work, make my employees do my dirty jobs, pray sparingly because it's their job. I didn't hear those things. And this is what I would say. This is probably the most important slide I think I've put in here. I think that occupying a leadership job, taking a leadership role, just having a leadership job to have a leadership job is just that. It's just a job. But when you commit to taking a management job, how you execute the decency and duty of leadership becomes the essence of what you do and who you are. There's decency to how leaders lead. There's a humbleness factor. There's a pride factor. But how you react and how you interact with other people is probably the strongest part of what you get to do. And so I would say to every leader, new leaders especially, what will be your intentional style? That's something those of us who've been in these types of jobs for a while have learned to understand over time that you make an intentional style to the way you lead. It's not that you just show up at work and you begin managing or bossing without a strategy, without a moral compass. And so the intentional style and I will tell you, I think that that is so important because leadership boundary abuse occurs every day. And because we are all imperfect beings, it's easy to abuse somebody just because of who you are and where you are in the organization. It's easy to say, it's not convenient for me to give you a vacation day when you asked for it. I don't really care why you're asking for a vacation day. It doesn't matter to me that you're strenuously asking for a vacation day on this day, and you're not telling me why, and I'm not asking you when a vacation day might, who knows what is underlying that request. It's in the small things like denying somebody a day of vacation when you've abused the privilege of your leadership without knowing why. Um, sometimes it's you decide, hey, my day's worse than the day around that everybody else is having. So I'm entitled to lose my temper. I'm entitled to be the one that yells and screams at my staff. It's an abuse of power. And the thing is, unless we're aware of that, and unless we're always trying to keep our compass pointed to true north, it's an effort to keep a compass pointed to true north because we're all imperfect beings. Um, unless we do that, abusing people by the way we do our jobs is a simple thing. It's easy. bad bosses. 
have a couple of uh, surveys that got done. This one was done from the uh, Young Entrepreneur Council. It's an invitation-only council for people under the age of 40. So you can actually Google them, and uh, you can ask to be invited. It's a huge, big think tank of young entrepreneurs. And they say, here's what characterizes bad bosses in their book. I'll just give you a minute to scan that list. If you're like me, you've had some bosses that have taught you how not to be a boss. And I see some characteristics of some of my uh, former, former leaders, not my former leader. It would be the leaders before my former leader. Um, that I see some of these characteristics in. Go ahead on to the next. 10 most common bad boss traits, ranging from disrespectful to having a negative attitude, being lazy, having inappropriate humor, swearing, sexist comments, loud phone calls. This actually came out of Great Britain a couple years ago. But I think we see some common characteristics here, too. I think you have to make a decision not to be a bad boss, which means making a decision about how to be a good boss. I think there are some antidotes to bad boss stress, because I think bad bosses inflict stress on their employees. And some bad bosses are so bad and so toxic that they keep their, their staff in a constant state of turmoil. The staff doesn't even know if they're coming or going. And in my opinion, I, I don't think they're probably evil people. I think they just are misplaced in their jobs and they never really had anybody to sit down and say, you've got to make a decision about how you want to lead. It's a conscious decision. Go ahead. Kindness. I think above all things, if you're the boss, kindness matters. Kindness can make people well. Um, it can cause them to secrete great hormones in their body like energy and happiness and love hormones. It can even decrease pain and stress and anxiety. But the good thing about kindness is it can be taught and modeled. I think civility is important and having good manners even when the critic has you by the throat. A great leader doesn't react, do they? At least not uncivilly, even in the bad moments. Go ahead. Helping others. You know, there are two kinds of happiness. There's hedonistic happiness and eudaimonic happiness. Hedonistic happiness is self-serving. It's pleasure-seeking. Eudaimonic happiness is the happiness that comes from serving others. And so if you can help your staff or the people around you understand how to serve others, it's a good place for you. It makes you feel better. It makes them feel better. People over the age of 55 who volunteer at two or more organizations have a 44% reduced chance of dying early. And that's out, sifting out every other contributing factor, like physical health, exercise, smoking, marital status. And they say, sorry for the pastors in the room, this is a stronger effect than exercising four times a week or even going to church. 
gratitude. We all hear a lot about being a grateful person and living a life of gratitude. But those who keep a gratitude journal generally cope better with the vicissitudes of life. One of the things I try to do is count the ways I'm grateful for my employees. I am very grateful for my employees. We wouldn't have the great organization we have today if it weren't for them. And resilience, you want a resilient workforce. A resilient workforce is healthier. People who cannot cope with workplace stress and people who can't cope with the inflicted stress of a bad boss statistically have more disease, and it's measurable, and it's documented. Go ahead. So putting it together, I know everybody who becomes a boss understands every person who comes to work for you needs fair pay. That's kind of at the ground level. Everybody deserves fair pay. And in return, the person who is working for you for pay, fair pay owes you a fair day's work for that pay, don't they? And uh, a good quality output. So no matter what kind of a job we have, whether we're a boss or not, we're still following somebody. We're still answerable to somebody, to some higher authority, you know. Uh, and so putting in a fair day's work for a fair day's pay is, a, is the bottom rung. But people also crave encouragement and acknowledgement and caring. They crave authentic praise when it's earned. Nobody likes disingenuous praise. Kids can see through it in a nanosecond. It takes adults maybe eight or 10 seconds to see through it but eventually you realize that it's disingenuous and it's hurtful. So people love earned praise. And people want to know, for the most part, am I behaving in a substandard way? Is my performance substandard? Don't let me get to my annual employment evaluation and tell me that for the last 11 months you haven't been able to stand the way I work. Tell me when you first notice, because most people want to correct that because most people want to please their bosses. Most people want to do a good job. You know, that's their purpose. Adults' purpose is to work. There is no imperative to idleness. So most adults love to work and they want to do it well. And the boss that understands that, I think will have a happier employee. I think it's important to know that employees matter to me their leader. I try to learn people's names. Sometimes it's hard to keep up. But I try to call people by their name because there's no greater music in the world than to hear your name. But when your boss says your name, that's really something. That's special. And I think bosses owe it to help the drowning employees. You know, I'll tell you a story. I had a person in, not at Newton Medical Center, in another hospital where I was a leader. And this individual had trouble reporting to work on time. She was late every single day. And I pulled her into the office and I visited with her about her lateness and do you think that you could be on time tomorrow? Yes, I can be on time tomorrow. And in 20 minutes after shift reports started here, she would come. And finally, I brought her to my office and I said, 
do you think you could be on time tomorrow? Yes, I could. And it struck me. What prevents you from getting to work on time? And she just burst into tears. My husband won't let me come in the door. I have to sit in the car until I'm late. Why? Because he knows I'll get in trouble. Okay. So what time does your husband allow you to get out of the car? 20 after 7. Okay. Your shift now starts at 7.30. Can you be in here by 7.30 every day? Yes, I can. You know, yes, I can. And the other, you know, the other workers on the unit, ah, well, shift starts at 7 o'clock. Yeah, well, I've, for a reason that I cannot disclose to you, this person's shift is going to start at 7.30. But it's going to allow her to work over a half an hour on the 3 to 11 shift and kind of help get the 3 to 11 shift started. Don't you think that's a good idea? Oh, yeah, we never thought of it that way. And so she came to work at 7.30. And she was on time every day. Right? It's kind of understanding. Understanding where our employees' needs are. Consistency, I think, builds trust. Uh, you have to be the same person every day when you go to work. You can't show up one day being Joe Nice Guy and then show up the next day being the mad dog that runs out of the bushes to bite at people's legs. Because people won't know how to react to you. They'll be on pins and needles. And that in and of itself is abusive to employees. Authentic investments. It's easy to do the big things like have employee appreciation day and stuff like that. But it's the small stuff that adds up to the big stuff over time. It's providing the right tools and the equipment and the training so that employees can do their work well. About a year ago, we were getting ready for uh, an inspection. And we went around and we thought, ooh, our housekeeping department needs some help. So the managers did an all-hands-on-deck. And we helped our housekeeping do some cleaning. And I came to find out in that day, we didn't have vacuum cleaners that uh, had good vacuum in them. And we were putting those into the hands of our employees and expecting them to go out and vacuum and clean up our facility. It was impossible to clean with the tools we gave them. So we had to get them new tools. But it was very discouraging to the housekeepers to work all day long and not have the right tools in their hands. It's a small thing, um, but a big thing to them. Here's another thing. Speak with your staff. If you can hold a person in a safe emotional space for a couple of minutes a day, it makes that person have five to seven additional hours of an elevated mood. And you'll enjoy about three to four hours of an elevated mood yourself, and it only takes two minutes to make that person's day and your own day better. Every year, our facility, we, our management staff tries to write somewhere between 30 and 40 letters to people outside the organization. It's a way to get our head above water and to see the good that's happening around us and our managers come with their ideas of who we need to write to next or who they read about in the newspaper. And it's enlightening and it's fun. And at the end of the year, it's fun to go back and see the progress uh, that we made through the year. But it helps the staff, every staff will become self-centered. And it helps us kind of rise above that and see the good around us. We use humor. 
Here's our director of uh, materials management, and she and I have been working very closely on PPE, personal protective equipment for COVID. We've had a rough time of it for the last six months, but she had a little fun, and so I guess I was getting on to her a little bit too much and asking her too many questions, and she sent me this picture, never fear, your PPE is here, and she had a disposable gown tied around her as a cape and her mask on, on top of all the boxes that had just come to the loading dock. So try to find the humor in every situation. It'll make you a better boss. We do uh, shout-outs and silent heroics. We've done that every week for about seven years now. I walk around the facility. I look for people, try to catch them doing something good, whether it's holding a door for a visitor or whether it's carrying a cafeteria tray for a visitor, um, just small little things, and I point them out by name to the whole hospital and the medical staff every week. And... Uh, Sometimes I'll, I'll even get uh, notice from staff. They'll want to know, how come you didn't put my name in the shout-outs this week? Didn't you see me do this or that? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> Quick, special shout-out, you know? But the thing that I started inserting in there about three years ago was silent heroics. There are a number of heroic things that occur that people don't want you to, maybe they don't want you to know about it but they want you to know about it. You know what I mean? They don't want you to see them, but they want you to notice. And so we do the shout outs and we do the silent heroics. Here was a silent heroic. A patient asked for a particular food. He was dying and he hadn't eaten for days because of course your, your food and drink drive goes away if you're dying. And he asked for a particular food and we didn't have it at the hospital that day. So the nurse who was taking care of him went home, prepared the dish, drove it back to the hospital, he took a bite, and that was his last meal. He was gone the next morning, but he ate what she provided, and that was a silent heroic. So they're all around us. They're all around us. They're there for the noticing. That's evolved into a great big annual recognition ceremony that we have this year. Uh, we gave about 130 uh, recognition awards for really distinguished service, and people love it. They want to put their awards on display, and they have portfolios, and they put, their, put a, an extra copy into their portfolio. It makes a wonderful, wonderful addition to the life of our organization. I would say notice and encourage, because sometimes the best vistas are close to home. This pretty little lake is just around the corner from where I live here in Newton, and I would say that the silent heroics close to home happen right under our noses, and we ought to notice them if we intend to be good bosses. I'd just say, too, that remember everyone you lead was once someone's child. And so because there's someone's special child, everyone you lead deserves special treatment, special respect. And it's a funny thing. This is my mother. This was shortly before she died. But she always wanted to know how things were at work. Do they treat you well? Yeah, Mom, they treat me really well. I love my job. That was important to her. Here's my little boy. I have four children. 
This is my oldest, Doug. He's 25 months old. You can imagine at that time, I had a lot of hopes for what he could achieve, what he could, uh, his aspirations might be someday. I loved being the mother of that little fellow. I still love being his mom. Go ahead. I think that when you use your leadership influence, when you use your leadership influence to help someone be successful at work, right? When your employees achieve their dreams, it benefits their heart health. But for you, you get the added benefit that it fortifies your own workforce. It makes your workforce stronger. Remember the diseases I said that could come from being chronically stressed by bad boss syndrome? When you help people be successful, you strengthen your workforce. They will live longer. They will be more productive longer. They will be happier longer, right? This was my son's boss, Colonel Cynthia Wong at Joint Base McGuire-Dixon Lakehurst in New Jersey. My son is a civilian firefighter there. And they got some structural steel from the World Trade Center, and it was lying dormant in a hangar covered up by canvas. And when she came onto the base, she had a fit. And she said, how disrespectful can we be? Let's get this put up. And she asked for volunteers to help her get the thing constructed, and my son stepped forward, and she helped him get that built. They raised a quarter of a million dollars to build it. And then he worked with the architects and everybody to get that put in. And that's not an easy job when you're on a, a base, a joint base, where you have to go to everybody and their brother to get approval, and you're a civilian. But she helped him get it done, and it's probably going to be one of the proudest um, achievements of his career, and is certainly something I'm proud of him for doing. I think leadership strategies can act as antidotes to stress. I think simple things like being kind to other people, being, having good manners, acting with civility, being grateful for what employees contribute. The interesting thing is you can do all of this in your organization and it's a no-budget solution. It doesn't cost a thing. It's just an investment of you into the people around you. So as with light, there are two ways to spread the good you want to do in your role. You can be the candle or the mirror that reflects it. I would encourage you to be the kind of leader, next slide, that's a caring boss who can spread heart health. And I'd encourage you to be the one. Thank you.